I am Roy Malloy and you are listening to The Dawn of Crime, a podcast dedicated to true crime histories throughout Australia and its time, and dedicated to the people and the biographies who have made this country what it has become, for good and for bad, a social history that unearths and hopefully offers biography to some of the people that did some of the most incredible things. Uh, this is a special extra podcast that I'm uh, uploading in commemoration of the book that I've just published, which is called The Gangs of Melbourne. And uh, this particular story is leaning on one of the chapters, which is about the Squizzy Taylor push. Squizzy and his older brother Claude uh, were both uh, renowned psychopaths. There's no other word for it. Um, they were sociopathic in their tendencies. They had very little, if any, uh, interest in the sufferings of others that they caused um, and this uh, particular upload is going to be talking about a, a small sensational wave of crimes that rocked through Melbourne in the immediate aftermath of Squeezy Taylor's shooting death in Buckley Street in Fitzroy, now Carlton and this particular crime is one of several that happened in that weekend uh, and it happened within days of Squizzy being shot, but it happened across town in North Melbourne. Along with this case, there were several other cases where uh, I have to call them uh, misguided, angry young men armed themselves to the teeth and hit the streets trying to imitate um, a media sensation that had become Squizzy Taylor. Squizzy, in real terms, though, wasn't somebody that should be celebrated but remembered. Uh, we're aware of that. He wasn't a good person, he wasn't some uh, hero. He was a really nasty piece of work but he did create a sensational amount of media deliberately and indeliberately and this case also did the same thing so this this case is uh, about and it leans on a group that called themselves the Wanderers Push and their leader is a fellow called Walter Keith Lu Xing so Walter Keith Lu is spelled L-E-W Xing S-H-I-N-G um, Walter was born to the son of Chinese migrants. His, his dad owned a, uh, a greengrocer's, uh, but he, he was one of those kids that was a runaway. Now, I've got to be honest, right, when I wrote this piece, it's hard to know what makes um, what, what makes somebody violent in these kinds of ways. But, uh, you know, that, that's a big part of this. But he is incredibly violent from a very young age. Alcohol features incredibly heavily in all of the stories that we get in the media that aren't just this one story, there's heaps of stories about him, but he finds himself 48 hours after the shooting of Squizzy Taylor and Snowy Cutmore with a gun on the streets. But his, his life is, it's littered with alcohol and violence. So when he's younger, on the Chinese New Year uh, events that were in 1926, so a year earlier, um, he finds himself with uh, a, a mate, more or less. He's 17 years old, and he's drunk, and he, he goes into a shop, and he, he just stands there. He's swearing loudly, and, and the shop owner says, look, mate, you know, take it outside, and he just launches into the shop owner and punches him repeatedly. So he's, whether he's trying to be something, and he's role-playing, or whether he, it's hard to track in the mind what makes somebody that violent, aggressive, and antisocial. Alcohol, sure, is a part of it, but that, that I mean, I've, <laughs> I've dabbled in alcohol, and it's nothing like that, let's be clear. So, uh, in that instance, he was fined two pounds, or given two weeks in prison. He paid the fine, two pounds back then, 
look, that, that's a, a menial wage. It's not a great wage, not a terrible wage, but that, that's a wage. So, you know, our equivalent to five to seven hundred dollars. And so it's, it's a sizable fine, but he pays it. But uh, he, he had his moments, and he was in and out of police um, infamy and attention throughout his childhood as well. The thing with, uh, with that kind of... Uh, criminal cases were expunged. Well, not cases, their, their record. So what they'd done prior to turning 18, um, their, their records were destroyed when they turned 18. I believe they were physically burnt, uh, their criminal records. So we lose track of what individuals like Squizzy Taylor had done prior to turning 18. And we hear stories about Squizzy, for example, that when he was a young child, um, I believe around about the age of 11, he was seen walking alongside the Yarra River by a policeman. He was carrying a Hessian sack, and uh, the policeman just saw a boy and was watching for a, a brief second. But at that moment, the young boy, who turned out to be Taylor, threw the Hessian sack into the Yarra. It wouldn't sink instantly because it got snagged on, um, I believe, plants or something, and it wouldn't sink. And the policeman went up to him and said, Hey, what are you doing? And the kid tried to split, so the policeman grabbed him and he looked inside the bag and in there there was just there was just a jam tin, there was you know a hammer I believe and just normal household items, nothing of any consequence, but uh, Squizzy was taken to the police station and would not for the life of him tell the copper what he was doing, why he was doing it, where the things came from. Now, we only have that story because it survives through an author called um, Hugh Anderson, who wrote a very good uh, biography of Taylor in the 1970s. But we don't know really a whole lot more about Squizzy. We know he was sent to the Bayswater Boys Home, the Salvation Army Institution. We don't know what for. So the same has to be said for Walter Lushing. We don't know why he was in and out of trouble. He just that he was. He kept appearing in the newspapers. Um, but he he, uh, he finds himself in and out of trouble. And um, this particular story it begins in North Melbourne. Um, he and his mate, they're in a car, they're cruising around, they've stolen a car, I should say stolen a car, it's probably very poignant part of the story, um, and, and he's with a mate called Leslie Coe, C-O-E. I don't know the nationality of Leslie, but uh, as far as I know, Walt Lushing is the only Chinese backgrounded um, push gang member I've ever come across. So they're both members of the Wanderers Push. Uh, they flogged a car from somewhere, and they're cruising the streets of North Melbourne. North Melbourne then, uh, and now, it was working class, uh, if not poorer than working class. Kind of, it's a pocket suburb that really had a lot of uh, misfortune and poverty around it. Um, and they're cruising the streets, but they're, they're looking for really any way they can be, you know, big tough men. But it, in this story, this story could probably varies from a lot of the other stories in his existence because on this night he's carrying a revolver. Um, I've said this in a few of my other podcasts, but revolvers weren't all that difficult to come by. They were, um, Second World War had kind of come, I mean 10 years earlier was the end of the Second World War and a lot of pistols came back from Europe in the Second World, after the Second World War. There's a couple of different models and you, know, you can Google those. The Webley is probably a common one. I don't know what kind of a revolver he's using but uh, you know in this time I mean there's all you can also get hold of automatic pistols and one of the very famous shootings in the middle of, of the 
Fitzroy Vendetta, Henry Stokes shoots Henry Slater with uh, an automatic revolver that has nine bullets in the hand, in the in the handle of the pistol, and he's got a separate cartridge. You know, so it, it kind of describes how you use that gun, but also its capabilities. I don't know a lot about guns. Uh, I find them. I, I'm, I don't think guns are cool. I, you, know, you get people that are really enthusiastic about the the gun aspect of the history. I, I don't know. Guns are. They're one of those bits and pieces that you know, I, I just don't have an opinion on them, uh, particularly for the sake of this, but it's, you know. And so they're driving along and they've got this, uh, this pistol being big, tough men, you know. And since they're cloaked inside the car, um, it's more, more, more likely they're looking for trouble. And in this particular area at the time, there is a rival gang called the Hawkeyes. So the Hawkeyes are the other half of the, this big you know, showdown. You know, it's easy to mock history and to think things like West Side Story, you know, <laughs> where the gangs kind of have a sing-off and they, 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 they want to be a tough guy, eh? <laughs> but it's, uh, th these guys meant business. Now, typically their, whip their weaponry was things like, um, you know, we were talking recently in one of the other podcasts about a rock even or a padlock or a bit of metal inside a sock. If you were apprehended, you put the sock back on your foot and then just carrying a rock. It's, it's very difficult to convict somebody of that. That slingshots of any description. Uh, occasionally, what's called a truncheon, which is uh, like, a, like a sock in its shape. It's made of leather and there's a weight in the end of it. It's what you see kind of the, the policeman in the 1920s cartoons beat someone on the back of the head with and they're knocked out. It, it was a hell of a thing to get hit with, but it didn't cut the skin as, as readily. It just was a great big blow and it would knock you out. But um, you know, they're driving along, and this time they've got a pistol. Uh, they go along Bendigo Street in North Melbourne, uh, and, which is a very normal suburban street, little front fences. Very, and the front doors of the houses are very close to the street. They're kind of um, early cottage-style house. And they see uh, a fellow called Richard Dunstan and his mate Ronald Pierce uh, leaving a house, and they're on their way out somewhere, probably the pub or the local, with two girls. Now, they, these boys are not from bad backgrounds as it stands. It seems more like um, the Hawkeyes have a bit to do with a local gymnasium that teaches boxing. Right, so Lu Xing doesn't stand a chance against that kind of action. He's not a good fighter, he's a brawler. And he'll use anything to that end, you know. But he's you know, cruising down Bendigo Street and he sees these guys coming out of their house. He pulls over the car. The newspaper report says abruptly, so he screeches to a halt and um, does his best squeezy tailor or probably Al Capone. He would have been absolutely aware of Al Capone, but because uh, squeezy tailor was aware of Al Capone, but he jumps out of the, the car and he yells, Give us the women. Now, <laughs> there's that Blues Brothers, how much for the women? Um, I don't know the satire, but I, I wonder if the two blokes from the Hawkeyes looked at, at, at Lu Xing as he did this and thought, is he serious? I mean, I would. You kind of smile politely and just keep walking. But I think also probably that he was known to them and he would have been known as a psychopath or at the very best, somebody that was unhinged enough to mean it when he said, give us the women. So Dunstan, uh, said, one, of the, one of the girls was actually Dunstan's sister. Alright, so there's no chance that it's ever going to happen, let alone he's probably going to take a bit more offence that it's his own sister, you know. Um, so 
the actual cause of the original quarrel between the Hawkeyes and the Wanderers is not known. You know, it's just probably one of those long-standing irritations. They might have started at school, who knows, but um, they... Uh, Lushing had only been released from court a short time earlier, um, and he'd been fined five pounds for threatening language directed at the Hawkeyes. So, he's, you know, this is something that he's carried with him. Um, in amongst his many court appearances and uh, felonious undertaking. So Lucian jumps out, he yells out, give us the, give us the girls. And uh, Dunson says, yeah, nah, that's my sister, mate, not happening. Uh, that's probably a quote, <laughs> bits of a word. The, the girl is my sister is the actual quote, uh, paraphrasing a bit. But uh, it, Dunson particularly is a well-established boxer. He's a prize one boxer. He's won competitions in the area. Lushing would have known this, and Dunstan, I'll put a photo of Lushing up as, as the thumbnail for this podcast, take a look at him, he's a wiry, wiry boy, he doesn't have a lot to him, Dunstan did, he was muscular, and a trained boxer, Lushing would have known he was in over his head, unless, and he did, he pulled the gun, so he whips out the gun from his coat pocket, and he steps up to Pierce, uh, and he presses the revolver firmly into his chest. Uh, and to be precise, against his heart, and he pulls the trigger. To all of their amazement, um, the gun didn't have a full barrel of bullets, and the hammer hit an empty chamber. So he's only got four, I believe, four bullets in the gun that hold six, and it goes click. Although Lucian had gotten in close to Pierce with the gun and surprised him, <laughs> when the when the gun went click, Lucian was in for the father of a hiding. Um, Pierce slapped the gun uh, away um, as his finger pulled the trigger a second time, but this time the bullet hit a, uh, the hammer hit a bullet. Um, but the gun, as it kind of went away from his hand, just as misfortune would have it, was pointing directly at Dunstan. Shot him straight in the stomach, uh, and Dunstan was taken to hospital just in time, but in a critical condition. Um, it's amazingly he lived uh, after being shot in close range and I guess other parts of this story that are really quite amazing are how someone gets to hospital. Um, he made a full recovery uh, but I reckon so Lushing in this story he didn't actually serve any jail time for this instance. If he did it's not registered in his prison record. Um, but I would have to dare say that the Hawkeyes probably exacted their own revenge on him uh, several times over for what he did. This has been uh, just a little bit of an extra on the dawn of crime. Uh, I've added this one just to give you guys some of the insights to some of the articles that are in the book, the, uh, the Gangs of Melbourne, which is all about push gangs like we've been talking about today, uh, through a period that lasts probably from about 1880 all the way through to the 1930s. I'd love you guys to check out The Gangs of Melbourne. It's the fourth of my books that are the Dawn of Crime books uh, this year. I'll be publishing more early next year. But please do make sure you hit follow on this platform that you're listening to this on. And also head over to Facebook and check out The Dawn of Crime or Roy Malloy, author, on Facebook. 